I used to take our youth group to DCLA, which was a youth evangelism super conference. And every time we'd go, it was in Washington, D.C., and we would go to the Vietnam War Memorial and check it out. And maybe you didn't know, but the War Memorial is angled in such a way, the walls are angled in such a way that the one angle uh, directs you toward the Washington Monument. And do you know what the other angle directs you toward? The Lincoln Monu- Monument. That's exactly, exactly right. There are over 58,000 names of men and women who gave their lives for freedom on that wall. I remember the controversy as they were getting ready to build that memorial. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And I found it super interesting. But as you walk up and see the wall and even touch the wall, like this person, this is one of my favorite pictures of the war memorial, that you feel something there. It's a somber, it's a respectful, it's a reverence that you experience in that moment. And like this man touching and feeling something and maybe having known someone who had given their life in service for our country. And there are walls of remembrance or should be walls of memorial around us. In Jerusalem, there's another wall. It's called the Wailing Wall. And and, and I didn't know this, and maybe you know this or have known this before, but as I was doing research for this message, I was interested in finding out that the people that come to the Wailing Wall to pray, because this is a remnant, excuse me, of the wall, of Jerusalem, and devout Jews go there to pray and to leave notes and messages if they're not comfortable praying. But behind that wall, they direct their prayers to the foundation stone. And I don't know if you're familiar with the foundation stone. I wasn't. But what I found out was they believe the foundation stone was where the Ark of the Covenant sat over, and it was the foundation stone for the holy of holy place in the temple. It was believed, some Jews believed, that it was where all creation occurred to begin with. This is where God created man and woman in the garden, there. And so it's the holiest place for the Jew in Jerusalem. So if you ever get to go there, I'm going to try to go there again this spring. We've been canceled a couple years. I want to go and see that place. You have to dress appropriately to go to the temple wall. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament scripture, then you can think of the book of the Bible where there was a wall rebuilder. Anybody know? Nehemiah, exactly. So if you would, if you're joining us, we're in a series online or in person. We're in a series called More Than Surviving. We're looking at men and women in the Bible 
that did more than survive in inhospitable or extreme conditions, and Nehemiah was one such person. So if you'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at that this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. That Hanani, one, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, this is Ananiah in the first person, or Nehemiah in the first person, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The question you might be asking, if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, someone said last week, I'm not familiar with the book of Esther. And I said, well, it's a great book. You ought to read it. Nehemiah is another short book that you ought to read about the wall rebuilding. But here is a man who is grieved over walls. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Why were Jerusalem's badly damaged city walls caused for great grief? Well, I got to tell you that for, for this Jewish man, for Nehemiah, it meant everything. Because Jerusalem was where he prayed to. Jerusalem was the heart of Hebrew culture. And the walls were broken down. That meant his life, his spiritual life, was broken down. And he was grieved. In the ancient world, walls were necessary in order to provide protection from one's enemies. To provide protection. And I would say today, walls are important or should be important in our lives. You might think of them as boundaries. And if you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, you know that he went to the king, he asked, actually he was grieved, he was a cupbearer, and the king noticed that he was downcast and he asked why. And Nehemiah told him, because the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down, can I, O king, go and rebuild walls? And he got permission, he got permission to to gather the materials that he needed and to cross borders into other kingdoms as he went to Jerusalem. And it's quite a story. Now, if you were here last week and you heard me preach about Esther, you've got to realize that even though it goes Nehemiah, Esther in the Bible, the books of the Bible are not chronologicals because Esther actually lived before Nehemiah, about 480 B.C., and Nehemiah's actual, uh, what do I want to say, existence was from 440 on. And so what we see here, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, you don't have to go there right now, but, but we see that when Nehemiah makes his request to King Artaxerxes, the queen was sitting there. 
And you might say, well, why was that so important that the queen was sitting there? It's kind of unusual in a Persian dynasty, if you know anything about Persian dynasties, for the queen being mentioned in this, in this exchange. Well, you got to remember, Esther preceded uh, Nehemiah, and that Esther's influence continued on. Now, some people, some commentators would say that this was, Artaxerxes was the same as Xerxes that I talked about last week, and that this was probably Esther, or could have been Esther. But more likely, most scholars agree that this is probably Esther's stepson who was reigning in Persia. And the favoritism that Nehemiah received was because of Esther's influence to be able to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he went back. And if you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, the story continues. So here's what he finds when he goes back to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to, to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. I think walls are important. I think walls in our lives, in your life, are important. See, walls define what was sacred and what was secular. What was godly and what was worldly. In our culture today... There should be a wall in your life in regard to marriage. What is sacred and what is secular in the sense of that marriage was designed by God, a man and a woman, for life. Anything less than that is what is not what God desired. And so there's a lot of devastation. There's a wall of mor- there should be a wall of moral conscience in our lives as Christians. What is right and what is wrong defined by the word of God. 
Now, we're fighting about a lot of things in our country right now that don't have anything to do with morality, and it's a matter of opinion, and it's almost at a scale of conviction. And we're pretty intolerant of each other in regards to our opinion, which should be, there should be more freedom if it's not a thus saith the Lord. But in matters that God speaks to, then we need to submit to and have convictions in regard to because there should be walls of moral conscience in our lives. Also, there should be a wall for the Sabbath. And, and I, was, I was preaching this in first service and uh, a lady asked me between services and said, well, why do we talk about the Sabbath but then we... We worship on the first day of the week. And I said, well, that's a good question, because I didn't even discuss this in uh, our previous service. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it talks about the early church meeting on the first day of the week. And Christendom, from the very beginning, met on the first day of the week. We no longer worship on the Sabbath, which is Friday evening to Saturday evening, because of that tradition, but there still is a setting aside for one day a week as God rested to honor the sacred. Now, a few years ago, maybe you remember this advertisement. Do you remember what weekends were made for? And in our culture and in our society, and I'm not trying to condemn that, but folks, as Christians, our Sabbath, our Sunday, should be devoted to God. There's a boundary of the sacred that we need. And when when there are no walls, the solidarity of a defined people group break down while the advancing influences of the invading forces proceed unimpended. Basically, it says without boundaries, without walls in our lives, the enemy will take hold. What the city walls achieved in Jerusalem physically is what the Sabbath achieved spiritually. By building a wall around a time of quiet, a time of reflection and worship in the midst of routine busyness and day-to-day business, they found a way to recalibrate their fragmented lives. Now, if you're joining us online or if you're here in person today, which you are if you're in this room, I hope you're in person, you are in the process of recalibrating your life. This is a touchstone event. I hope for you weekly that this is an opportunity to stop, to reflect, to be quiet, and to think. Now, one time isn't going to change your life, but if this is a habit, then this is a touchstone time of the sacred. We have so many hours of the week where we are bombarded secularly, but when is our sacred space? Holy ground was fenced off in order that faith, family, and a sense of the presence of God might be guarded. 
to be watered and to grow. Common days surrendered to uncommon time. The Sabbath was a figurative wall built each week to reestablish boundaries of communal identity and to separate the holy from the secular. Did you know that was what you're doing? We're gathering to have communal identity. Doesn't that excite you? We don't even realize that. In fact, for me, and maybe for you, it is a step back in time as a reminder of me being brought to church, whether I wanted to or not, and and gathering with people and getting to know them as family. And that changed my life because there were times when I felt refilled and refueled because of the gathering of of Christians and it made all the difference in my life. You see, Jewish writers say that the world is resold every Sabbath. And I hope for us as a body, as the family of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, that as we gather, we are being resold. Through the Sabbath, Judaism has succeeded in turning its greatest teaching into a day out of a remote world of profound thoughts, grand dreams, and fond hopes, all of which seem so distant, so intangible, and so unrealizable. The Sabbath has forged a living reality which can be seen, tasted, and felt once a week. We just experience that in communion in the Lord's Supper as we gather around the table with the loaf and the cup. Now, a picture I want to show you this morning. This is a group of Jews that are being herded out of a train car into a concentration camp. There's another picture to show the crowding. They were gathered like cattle. In, in this picture, you can just see their hands. In the next picture, you can just see their hands sticking out of the windows in, in this train car. And the story goes that one woman, a, a Jewess, was gathered by the Nazis on a Friday. And the only thing that she could take with her was that she wrapped up the shallow, shallow bread and, and the candles that she used for the Sabbath worship, and she carried them with her as a, what I want to say, cat, or they drove them into the train car. And, and the feeling as they were packed together with hardly room to sit down was a, a miserable, terrible, feeling of loss and impending doom. And about Friday night at about about sunset, she unwrapped these candelabras and lit them and then broke bread. And they sang the song, Loka Didi, which means to come, O beloved, and they celebrated the Sabbath in that train car. 
before being exterminated by the Nazis. Can you imagine? But one survivor said that they, they had such peace and such comfort because they felt the presence and the peace of God in that moment. Folks, during distressing, disturbing, turbulent times, we need those moments of, of the sacred in our lives. The years without walls resulted in the disappearance of, of Sabbath walls. It was a tragic consequence, rendering God's people as vulnerable spiritually as they were politically. Now I want to look at what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 13, 15 through 22. Because the walls were down, they were not honoring God and the fourth commandment. This is what it says in 15 through 22. It says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no loads might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares launched outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites and that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I believe Nehemiah was at his wit's end when this occurred. Can you imagine? Hey guys, we're locking the gates. There's going to be no commerce on the Sabbath. And that had to be crazy to those folks that were dealing in merchandise and stuff and bringing their goods into Jerusalem. But Nehemiah, as the governor, took effort and, and put guards there to the point that he deputized the priests and Levites to keep the day holy. Now, this could not have been popular. In fact, I imagine... People were upset, but then he said, hey, I will lay hands on you. Now, 
to, to use a more common vernacular, they were going to beat some people up if they didn't honor the Sabbath. Now, I can't imagine going to a golf course and saying, hey guys, you can't play golf today because today's Sunday. I'm going to beat you up if you don't. I might get thrashed pretty well. There might be some people upset. But can you imagine the activities that we participate in? And somebody's saying, hey, nope, sorry, you can't do that. But Nehemiah was making the point that we need, they need, to honor the Sabbath because the Sabbath had become just another workday. And it was God's day. And we need to remember God's day. Nehemiah worked to rebuild the wall that protected Jerusalem and the temple from its enemies. He also restored another wall that was in disrepair. The wall around God's commanded Sabbath was just as sacred as the one that defined the city limits. That was so important. And when the Sabbath wall is broken down, the enemies of our soul can easily steal the joy and the refreshment God intends for us. An often overlooked key to thriving spiritually is found in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Now we, we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. But the point was that God wanted us and wanted to call us to recalibrate our lives. Because we were created by God and he said we needed it. And guess what? We are better for it. Oftentimes, someone's comment, something that I've learned, something that someone else has said has made a difference in my life because I was here worshiping God on the Sabbath. What kinds of activity or non-activity tend to recharge your spiritual and emotional batteries? Where do you find that refilling or that refueling? What day or part of your weekend will you build a wall around to re-soul? Got to remember that strong walls and strong lives are built one brick at a time. It's not one Sunday. It's Sunday after Sunday. It's life group after life group. It's devotion after devotion, spending time with God that builds our lives, that makes a difference, that makes a habit, that fills our spirits. Because it it wasn't the Jewish people who preserved the Sabbath, but the Sabbath that preserved the Jewish people. And I would say that that's what Sunday does for us. It's not the Sunday, or it's not the Christian that uh, preserved Sunday. It's the Sunday that preserved us, that worship of God. My question this morning is how sacred is your Sunday? How sacred is it? This morning I want to challenge you with this. To, to build a wall for the Sabbath in your life. Make that a part 
of your family, part of your walk, the gathering of God's people, to to keep that sacred, that time of reflection, meditation, of worship, that someone speaks into you and you speak into them, that, that makes our lives worth living, that touchstone experience. Will you stand and pray with me this morning?